Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Rupa Subramania Show. I'm Rupa Subramania. Today, I'm going to be speaking to Aaron Kimberly. He's a transsexual man and a mental health nurse who's worked with gender dysphoric youth. He's co-founded the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, which seeks to facilitate a more evidence-based, less ideological conversations about gender dysphoria. Given how polarized the trans debate has become recently, I'm very eager to chat with Aaron about his own transition journey and the way forward. Aaron, welcome, welcome to the show. Uh, it's a real pleasure to have you here with me. Uh, let me just start by asking about your own, um, you know, you've written about um, your own uh, gender dysphoria leading to what you've termed opposite sex social mirroring, and that in the majority of such cases, um, young people experiencing this are probably gay, and that gender and the, the gender dysphoria condition may disappear over time. Could you share with us uh, your own experience? Uh, I believe you went through a period of being a lesbian before you transitioned. Yeah, that's right. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so I would have what, you know, what the textbooks would call childhood onset gender dysphoria starting at about age three, which for the childhood onset type, that's usually when it starts as some sort of self-perception of yourself as as the opposite sex. Um, and research has shown that the vast majority of the time that that childhood onset gender dysphoria is highly correlated with being gay or lesbian and tends to, as you said, um, it tends to shed off through adolescence and the, the awakening and the development of a gay or lesbian identity. Um, for a small number of people that, that, um, that doesn't resolve into adulthood. And historically, um, we are typically the ones that we're, we're transitioning as adults. Most people, when they think of a transgender person, that's probably what they think of um, is a highly effeminate gay man or a, a very masculine gay woman. Um, you know, though, though that's, I think, I think the reality of the majority of people who transition don't fit that, that criteria, which I think for a lot of people would be a surprise to know that there are different types of gender dysphoria and different pathways. Um, so the, the, the gay or lesbian pathway is, is one of the, the smaller pathways. Um, so in terms of my own experience, um, it, it was a very difficult thing to articulate as a young child. I could sense that you know, something wasn't right. Um, and I, I, you know, I sense this, this perception of myself as male. So that, you know, the, you know, the classic things that we would hear of, I would say apply to me, you know, feeling like something had gone wrong, that, that a mistake had somehow been made. Um, and I don't like the language of born in the wrong body. That's, that's not language that I, I personally use, because I, I think that's problematic for various reasons. But but that that sense that a mistake had been made and that somehow I was in fact male. Um, what I didn't know at the time was that I um, also had an intersex condition, a very a rare one called an ovotisticular um, DSD, uh, which I didn't know I had until age 19. I was having a lot of gynecological problems and hormone imbalances. And um, I had developed a large cyst on what was thought to be an ovary at the time. So the surgeon went in to remove that. And um, he said that it, it was so damaged by the cyst that they sent it, they had to remove all of it and um, sent it for biopsy. And that's when the ovotesticular disorder was, was discovered. And so I, he didn't really explain much to me about what that was. He seemed a little bit kind of, 
awkward and embarrassed. And so I picked up on that cue and he, his reassurance to me was that it had since been removed and wouldn't pose a problem for me anymore. Um, it is apparently a cancer risk. And so he said it was, it was good that it had been removed. Um, and I, you know, he didn't, he didn't know that I experienced gender dysphoria, though I've since learned, you know, just in my own reading about the disorder that um, it is associated with a very high rate of gender dysphoria, um, almost a 50-50 chance. They, they, they have a diff difficult time. If it was diagnosed as a baby, they have a difficult time determining which sex that child is going to feel an identification with. Uh, it's probably the highest rate of all of the intersex conditions. Not all intersex conditions are related, have an association, association with gender dysphoria. But when the current DSM criteria for gender dysphoria was written, they written it um, with a DSD, DSD or intersex subtype because certain intersex conditions are associated with a higher rate of, of cross-sex identification and want to change their sex legally as an adult um, and wanted to make sure that there was a pathway for, for us to be able to access those services. Because when with the gender identity disorder, which was the previous name for the, for the condition, that intersex pathway um, hadn't been part of that diagnostic criteria. Okay. So um, what made you ultimately decide to transition? Uh, and I believe uh, you transitioned when you were um, in your 30s, I believe. That's what I read somewhere. And so that's pretty late for a person to be transitioning, I imagine. Uh, so what, what, what made you uh, decide that? Uh, well, well, back then, I mean, 20 years ago, that wasn't wasn't late. They weren't really transitioning young kids at that time. But I grew up in a small town in Manitoba, so I, I didn't have access to either intersex services or um, transition services. That wasn't something that I even knew existed. Um, and I had a lot of when I did learn about it years later, I was skeptical. I, I assumed that there would be a lot of health risks involved and um so it seemed far-fetched and, and I was afraid to take the medical option. But um, so it really wasn't until I moved to Vancouver and, and met other trans people and learned more about it and, and what the health risks were and, and what they weren't um, when it started to feel like, like a real possibility for me. But um, the way that, because I, I had no way of articulating it as a child, so I had no help for it as a child. I didn't tell anybody about it until I went to the gender clinic as an adult. Um, so I had no framework through which to understand it. When I was diagnosed with the intersex condition, I just chalked it up to these two things are somehow related. Um, and I did just did my best to kind of limp, limp through it. But as I got older and, and older, the symptoms of it became worse and worse. And in hindsight, you know, I've tried to find ways of articulating it with more nuance um, because some of these some of these catchphrases like born in the wrong body, you know, they've, they've become as problematic as they are helpful to helping people understand our experiences. So I've tried to sort of dig through my memories and find a language to better describe how it felt. And if you've ever been on like a Zoom meeting or a phone call where your own voice is being echoed back to you, that it oftentimes creates a very strong discomfort. I've had people say, well, I, I need to hang up this phone call and, and try again, because it's such an uncomfortable feeling. It, that's hard to articulate, right? To ask yeah. anyone, well, why is that uncomfortable for mm -hmm. you? I don't think they'd be able to articulate why it just causes this kind of this cognitive discomfort. And to the extent that people will end a phone call um, because of that discomfort. So that was a similar, very similar sensation that I experienced. Anytime I had to acknowledge my biological sex or consider which sex category I belonged in would cause a very similar sort of cognitive discomfort that very, that, and that's what I would call dysphoria is just that discomfort. And so anytime I saw myself in a mirror or caught my reflection in a store window or uh, heard my voice on a recording, I would, ha or had any time I had to acknowledge my bio biological sex, I experienced that that little cognitive glitch that, that did cause me a lot of distress. So if you can imagine the distress it might cause you on a Zoom call, imagining going through life with every social interaction, every time you saw your reflection, 
it's hard to go through life avoiding that that sensation. So it did become an impairment to my functioning because it was such a distraction. You know, every time I'm having a conversation with somebody, or you know, if I'm in a business meeting or on a phone call, and and I'm experiencing that discomfort, it, it just it it became it, it's a burden. It's a heavy burden to go through life with. Yeah. And so my intention with transition was hoping that that hoping that that little glitch that was happening in my mind would would resolve. And and for the most part, I would say that that transition did do that. Um, and it, it did help with my functioning. And I mean, it caused other problems. I mean, there, it's not a medically neutral intervention. Um, and I, you know, experienced surgical complications and those kinds of things, but it did resolve that, that psychological glitch, which has helped me to function better socially and, and occupationally. Yeah, no, I mean, that's one of the things that people don't often discuss are the complications that arise from uh, from from this kind of uh, surgery and this kind of treatment. Um, uh, I mean, if it's, it's really up to you, uh, what are some things that you experienced? Um, and I also wanted to ask you, um, that's if you're comfortable sharing that with us. I also wanted to ask you, I mean, you transitioned about 20 years ago. It was I imagine it was fairly new at that time, um, um, the treatment options. Things are a lot different now, I, I believe. There's, there's a lot of stuff happening in that space. Uh, how do you contrast the two, um, you know, uh, the two time periods as far as uh, transitioning is concerned? Yeah, so in terms of some of the, some of the differences, um, I mean, in Vancouver, it wasn't entirely new. Uh, I think Vancouver was one of the early adopters. And um, I mean, some of the people that I that I met had transitioned, you know, you know, six to 10 years before I did even, but um, there was a lot more assessment. It, it, I wasn't that familiar with, with the WPATH standards of care at the time that I went into the clinic, but it was the beginnings of um, the, the, so the previous standards of care. So that would have been SOC, it would have been SOC 6, I guess, at the time that I transitioned. So back then there was in, in that standards of care, the requirement for the real life test, which is um, a one year period of living to the best of your ability as the opposite sex before you would qualify for interventions and a very lengthy assessment process. But the clinic that I went to, I think, was one of the early adopters of a more informed consent model. Um, and so they didn't require that I do the real life test. I did go through an assessment process over about a three month period before starting hormones. And then um, I had to see a psychologist again before any surgeries and then another assessment again before um, any other surgeries. Um, so there was a lot more assessment back then, but it was the be still the beginnings of what we now call the affirmative model. So there was no, there was no pushback. There was no, um, there was no education about what gender dysphoria is, and there was no requirement for psychotherapy or for a real life test. Mm -hmm. And that was 10 years before this, the standards of care even changed. So they, they really weren't following. And people say, well, everyone's following the standards of care. But when I transitioned about, you know, about 16 years ago, they, they weren't following the standards of care and, and they still don't really, there's a lot of clinics that don't follow the standards of care. So would you say that it's, things are a little more, um, uh, what's, what, what's the term? Like things are a little looser now, laxer now compared to how they were about 20 years ago? Yeah. Well, when I was, cause I'm a registered nurse, um, it's worked in yeah. mental health. And, um, so the clinic I was working for started to do some trans care for young people, for youth ages. We weren't transitioning anyone at 12, but our, the clinic saw people from 12 to, to 25. And so we were receiving training to do that work. And the message that I was getting, cause I had been under the presumption that things were, were the same as it was when I went through the system. So our clinic was planning on doing careful detailed assessment um, and case management with young people. And I quickly discovered that that's not how people are practicing anymore. I was told, you know, this could be done in a single visit. Um, and that the purpose of the assessment was really just to determine the capacity to consent, that there was no real requirement of gender dysphoria anymore. That So that diagnosis didn't need to be made. And 
um, we were given a one-page checklist of things to go through with the clients, but it wasn't really clear what do we do with that information. So it did ask about medical history and psychiatric history. But I asked, like, so if if someone does have a psychiatric condition, what, what do we do with that information? We're supposed to ask about it, but what are we supposed to do with that information? And I was told, well, people have a right to be both trans and mentally ill. So basically we do, you know, as long as it didn't interfere with their ability to provide consent, then we don't really do anything with that information. We just give people what they want. Mm-hmm. And that started to really concern me because the the youth that I was seeing in our clinic were were highly complex with multiple issues going on. Like some of them had autism or ADHD or uh, trauma backgrounds, you know, sexual abuse backgrounds. Um, and I felt like we needed to take our time and more care to get to know these youth and make sure that they that they knew what they were getting themselves into and that it was going to be an appropriate intervention for them. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I mean, you've, you have this unique perspective of not only having transitioned, but you also worked in the space, counseling young people. Um, and, uh, you know, did you see that the medical profession uh, and you were sometimes at odds with each other when it came to these young people? Yeah, I really didn't find that my ideas or my concerns were very welcome in the system and that really started to concern me that I felt like it was an environment of coercion and control that people weren't allowed to really think critically or or to have a different opinion or to ask certain questions Um, those kinds of conversations were were shut down very quickly Um, so I just withdrew myself from the care altogether I didn't feel comfortable in that kind of practice environment I didn't feel like it was safe or ethical um, care for these young people. And so I just removed myself from, from that responsibility of providing that care. I did so, have people message me privately yeah. and saying, you know, other clinicians who shared my concerns, but it, it wasn't an environment in which anyone is allowed to speak openly. Why is that? What is going on here? Uh, I mean, I, I, I ask this question to everyone in this space that I uh, have these conversations with why is that, especially here in Canada, where um, doctors are ne- not necessarily making a whole lot of money given our socialized system. In the US, one could make this argument that it's driven by commercial interests. There's a lot of money to be made by some of this cl- some of these clinics and doctors. But what's going on here? Is it uh, ideology that is driving this? They're really steeped in this ideology that they will not uh, uh, um, uh, entertain dissenting voices, especially someone who's actually transitioned and and you're saying, hey, wait a minute, I think we need to take time with these people because there are also mental health issues at play here before we put them on this irreversible path of uh, transitioning. Uh, What is going on here? Yeah, I was really surprised by it because I had been out of the loop for a number of years. I mean, yes, I'm a trans man, but I wasn't connected to any trans community. I've got a few close friends that I've maintained over the years that I met when I first transitioned and needed the services, but then we just went on and lived our lived our lives. And one of the things that really concerned me was while I was being told that, you know, any conversation about things like detransition, for example, or transition transition regret is just propaganda. And, and the accusation was A, that I was gatekeeping and B, that I was sharing propaganda. But meanwhile, I mean, some of my closest friends that transitioned around the same time I did were starting to unpack their, their experience and, and their transition. One, and, and two of them very much regret their transitions. They haven't detransitioned, but they do regret it. And one has said that his transition had more to do with um, his childhood sexual abuse. Um, that as he, over the years, as he worked through that trauma, he, he came to the realization that that was his motivation. The other has recently been diagnosed with autism and feels that that is a better fit for, for what his, he was experiencing. And he's quite angry about that kind of misdiagnosis because when he transitioned, he lost his entire family. They, they disowned him. And, um, so that was that was a lot of loss for him and now realizing that he probably never even had gender dysphoria in the first place. Um, but back to your question, I, I do. So it's alarming for me because when I transitioned, we talked about gender identity disorder within the gay and lesbian community, 
um, some of the butch lesbians that I'd known over the years, very highly masculine women, um, physically and, you know, and in terms of, you know, mannerisms and interests, and they would describe having an experience of gender identity disorder. Some of them transitioned and some of them didn't. So that was something that we talked about because, and I remember, I'm old enough to remember a lot of these people prior to transition and, and having seen them go through a transition. So I remember who we all were before transitioning. And we were highly effeminate gay, a few highly effeminate gay men, a few highly masculine gay women. And the majority were people that I didn't really have any social contact with. They were heterosexual men. Um, who were maybe cross-dressers or part of the, the kink community or um, that I didn't really know well, but they seemed to be the majority. So that was understood 20 years ago that, that there's different things going on, different, different cohorts of people transitioning. Um, so coming back into the, into the work and into the fold, um, it was almost a creepy experience for me to say things that I just thought were common sense about talking about different pathways to gender dysphoria and um, and that the clinicians, it's almost as if there's there's a type of amnesia that's gone on that that they don't seem to to remember, you know, these different pathways and the work that had been done and all the research that had been done into these different pathways. And so I do chalk it up to ideological capture. Mm -hmm. I think people that do this work tend to specialize in this work and um, tend to socialize in the community as well. Uh, many times come from the, the community and do this work. And I think when you are in a social, certain very specific social bubble that, that all starts to think and act and behave the same way, I think it maybe it becomes difficult to think outside of that box. And, and so that's how I chalk it up is, is most of the clinicians that I knew of on the, in that, um, in that um, it was a listserv and, and the mentorship group socialize within the queer community. And I, I just don't think they interact with people outside of that community very much and have just accepted that this very particular way of thinking. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, sticking to this, you've written and commented about uh, queer theory, which is an academic theory, I believe part of the broader postmodernism movement. Uh, the basic idea being that uh, gender is just a construction or performance and it's a tool of oppression. Um, uh, you, you, you write that in some ways this is liberating for trans people, but, but ultimately it, it's had a damaging effect on society. Uh, what exactly do you mean by this? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Well, I mean, I, back in when I was a... Uh, in university as a you know 20 something year old back in the early 90s um, was the beginnings of queer theory in academia and it was a uh, it was a in the department of literary criticism um, just to kind of contextualize where these theories come from so you're right exactly. that they're they're a branch of postmodernism and when we studied it we were looking at um, social philosophy and literature and interpreting literature through the lens of of these philosophies somehow those theories have become conflated with the condition of gender dysphoria. And that's my biggest concern is that basically a, you know, a political movement has co-opted our understanding of both intersex conditions, which are rare medical conditions and gender dysphoria, which is a, a psychological condition. And, and so I feel like the, the medical community is no longer seeking answers for about these conditions and they're no longer providing people education about these conditions and, and I, I don't know how to articulate it, how alarming it is for a political movement to have hijacked clinical conditions and have opened the gateway for people who, who don't even have these conditions to access the interventions yeah, I guess I, an, an, an analogy I could use is let's yeah. say there was this there was this sort of political philosophical movement that had certain ideas about psychosis 
that maybe they believed that 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 the state of psychosis was you know a, a highly advanced spiritual state, and they co-opted the treatment of schizophrenia, and not only that, but went into schools and and convinced kids, well, you know, if you hear voices you you have this special ability and, and we're going to worship you and we're going to elevate you and we're going to celebrate how awesome this ability is and and then also you know medicalized them along with people that had schizophrenia i mean that would be pretty alarming and that sounds far-fetched but that is essentially what's happened with the treatment of gender dysphoria is a political philosophical movement that started in academia in the early 90s has completely taken over our understanding of this condition and our treatment of this condition and is going into schools telling kids that having this condition is somehow brave and awesome and wonderful and more people should should adopt this way of thinking. Yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary how this academic theory, uh, which you know at one point was confined to left-wing humanities departments at universities has completely um, come to take over our understanding of uh, gender and sexuality. It is quite uh, alarming. Um, right, it's, yeah. it's, it's really dividing our society. And I think it is, um, you know, I think we, we had achieved a certain amount of social acceptance as trans people, um, you know, in the early 2000s, I think was our, our peak moment. Uh, and it was through efforts like old civil rights movements, like, you know, and, and based on trying to develop, build bridges with people and develop trust and help people understand our experience. That's how we were trying, you know, how we, how we um, were able to achieve a certain amount of, of social acceptance. But I think that's, that's very quickly being unraveled because mm -hmm. of these theories, because, you know, not everyone agrees with postmodernism. Um, not everyone agrees with how these ideas are being packaged and sold to, to our kids. Um, and it's fueling a lot more hostility and a lot more um, division, I think, between the entire LGBT movement and the general public. I think we're seeing more hostility, more backlash, more division. And that's not what I, that's not what I want. I would rather people understand my experience. It's, it's an unusual experience. I don't, I don't try to normalize it in the sense that I think this is something that everyone should aspire to feel. It's a, it's a condition that I wouldn't wish on anybody. But I think that educating people on the reality of that is, is far more effective than, than trying to shove postmodern theory down people's throats. But I think those postmodern theories are now been taken up at levels of, of national and international government. And it's starting to be written into law and policy, like our conversion therapy laws, for example. And I in no way condone conversion therapy, but the way that that was written, it was very underhanded. It was very much a backdoor way of writing queer theory into law. Hmm. You've been critical of the way gender dysphoria uh, is treated clinically. Um, you're not in favor, for example, of uh, puberty blockers uh, being prescribed right off the bat to a child who's experiencing gender dysphoria. Uh, what do you think should the uh, what do you think should the right approach be, and what should the role of parents and teachers be in this process? I'm having reviewed a lot of the literature and talked to many clinicians. Um, I'm of the opinion that the watchful waiting approach was most appropriate um, for the reason that there are now 13 different studies that all say the same thing: that when you followed those kids long enough, the vast majority of the kids with gender dysphoria did resolve it through puberty and became healthy, happy, gay, lesbian adults. Knowing that, that isn't the information that families or kids are being given today. Um, we're being taught this concept that there is such a thing as a trans child and that these children would benefit from being transitioned as early as possible. Now, it's easy for adults who have transitioned later in life to have the wishful thinking, I wish I could have done this as a child and, and imagining some of the benefits of that. But I don't see the rationale for slapping a trans label on a child, knowing that about 85% of those kids would resolve it through puberty. And it's not that I necessarily think, you know, it's awful to be trans and that it's an awful outcome, but it does mean lifelong medicalization. 
So for me, it's the difference between avoiding lifelong medicalization and some of the potential complications versus not having to be medicalized. And I, I, it seems highly unethical to me to transition to tell all of these kids that, that, that they're trans and that the pathway then is, is medicalization. Mm. And they're not being told what gender dysphoria really is, even though they're, you know, the two main pathways to gender dysphoria have been well studied. Um, there's still a lot more research that could be done to better understand it, but, but I don't think that those two pathways are disputable at this point. Yeah, that's extraordinary. How does a child benefit from transitioning? Does their life automatically just all of a sudden change? Um, I mean, in your case, you transitioned as an adult, um, um, and you know, as an adult, you you have this agency. You can do what you want with your body, so to speak. A child really has no agency. Um, they can't vote. They can't do a, a bunch of different things that you and I can do. Uh, but so, what what is like? How is this being um, uh, told to the parents of these children and to the child? Like, you know, you um, you know, you um, you get a mastectomy. You get, get rid of your various organs, and that. You transition to whatever gender you're transitioning to that you know it'll take a few months for the scars to heal but you'll be like a different person uh, um, and you'll be really happy is that really what is being sold to these uh, kids it, it well what's being sold to the families is that these kids will all commit suicide if, if they're not medicalized uh, so see. so parents are being told that and and there's no evidence to that to that effect so it's i think it's it's really inappropriate to tell families that when when we have no there's no there's no evidence that there's a direct you know path from not being immediately medicalized and and suicide um i mean it, it there is evidence that people with this, this condition um are more likely to have other mental health issues like depression and anxiety and are on average have more suicidal ideation but we can't say for certain that that suicidal ideation is directly because of um the, the gender dysphoria we don't know that i mean the, the suicide suicidality rates are higher for for most any mental health condition including kids that have you know ADHD, autism, any number of other conditions, social isolation, nor being gay or lesbian. Mm. Um, and there, but there's certainly no evidence that, that these kids are all going to act on those thoughts if they're not immediately, immediately medicalized. So that's really, I think, a, a kind of emotional blackmail for these parents who are now afraid that if I don't get along, go along with this and accept these treatments that my, I'm, you know, my child is- I'm is gonna lose my- themselves. I'm going to lose my child, basically. So there's a lot, there's a lot of uh, fear-mongering uh, uh, at play here as well uh, as from the medical community. Um, it's all quite tragic. I mean, I uh, was reading something that you wrote, and uh, this, this uh, quote really jumped at me. Uh, Why are we putting all of our resources into escaping brutality rather than eliminating brutality? We're cu cutting up our bodies because our lived reality is worse. Why do we celebrate that? And then, and quote, and that's precisely what is happening here. Where I see these horrific photos of young kids who um, are not even old enough to drive, uh, you know, proudly displaying uh, their bodies uh, in these photos that they no longer have breasts and they're on hormone therapy and so on and so forth. And um, you know, I just uh, why why are we celebrating this? What what are we celebrating here exactly? Yeah, it's, it's puzzling, isn't it? I mean, I wouldn't have done this if it weren't for a great deal of, of distress and poor functioning, which certainly isn't something to, to celebrate. Um, but I, I get, you know, in terms of the some of the youth that I was meeting with and assessing, I didn't get the sense that they even had gender dysphoria and, and that, that concerned me. I mean, our health authorities website even says that you don't have to be trans to access gender affirming care. So at this point, trans has become a very meaningless if it doesn't mean gender dysphoria and if it doesn't mean i mean i don't even know what trans means um so there's basically no criteria for accessing these interventions except somebody wanting it and i think there could be potentially many reasons for why a young person might think might imagine that their life would somehow be better if they were the opposite sex 
Yeah. Uh, you you mentioned that a couple of your friends uh, who transitioned along the same uh, around the same time as you did have come to regret it uh, for uh, uh, various reasons. How do people like that deal with their their you know where they find themselves? Uh, you know, after having transitioned and now they regret it. Like, um, I know you can't speak for them, but generally what, what happens to such folks? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that there's a lot of mental health uh, issues at play here. You know, how do they go on with their daily lives? I mean, what's going on? Are there resources to help deal with such individuals? I mean, we put a lot of resources, uh, it seems, into getting kids on puberty blockers and getting people to transition, but are there resources to deal with people who regret transition? There really aren't resources for regret. And, you know, be, and when it's being, when it's being sold as this is, you know, the very mention of regret is just propaganda, anti-trans propaganda. It mm -hmm. makes it very difficult to even explore creating services. Um, because the activists would come after after us saying this is anti-trans. So how do you start to talk about and create services for people that do regret it, who are often ostracized from the existing services? Um, and uh, fortunately, I mean, the two friends that I have have enough inner resolve and, and inner resources and friends and family around them that that they're they're okay. I mean, they're they're grieving, they're upset. Um, but I think you know they're 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 still functioning. They're still they're still okay. But I mean, it, I imagine that there are people with fewer inner resources, right, uh, or or not a lot of support around them who would really struggle with yeah. that realization that they've made a, a horrible mistake. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's uh, really quite uh, tragic. I don't I can't even imagine what what they must be going through. Um, because I don't really know the medical side of this issue, if once you detransitioned, uh, get uh, what once you um, once you transitioned and you and you're just unhappy with what the decision that you made, can you just stop taking all of your medication? And if you do so, what happens? Well, depending on on what stage someone is at, like if somebody has has taken the steps to to remove um, either their ovaries or their testicles, their bodies aren't producing any hormones anymore. So depending on how old they are, um, you know, their, their health would be at risk if they didn't have any hormones, either testosterone or estrogen. So they would have to have some sort of hormone replacement therapy for the rest of their lives. Okay. So they would be on that for the rest of their lives. And, and for those who transitioned, they're also on uh, hormones and all kinds of other things for the rest of their lives. Or does it just like uh, you've transitioned, that's it, that's it. Um, you can, you no longer have to take these medicines, uh, no longer have to undergo these treatments. Is that, is that how it works generally? Yeah. The biggest concern I think would be the, um, bone health. So if I were to just stop taking testosterone, for example, okay. I mean, a, none of those interventions are going to reverse themselves. I'm not going to grow the hair back on my head. I'm not going to lose the hair that's grown on my face and body. Yeah. Um, none of the parts that have been surgically re removed are going to grow back. And so I'm at an age now, I mean, I'm 50 now, so I could probably get through the rest of my life without hormones at this stage. I mean, I would probably be facing menopause if I still had ovaries anyway. Okay. Um, but if I was 20 or 30, I would be concerned about my long-term bone health if I didn't have any hormones in my body. So I would either have to continue taking testosterone or I would have to switch to estrogen in order to protect my bone health. Yeah. Um, you've written uh, also, Aaron, that uh, self-identification by some men who claim to be women merely by um, uh, self-identifying um, as women has created problems uh, in various uh, places like assaults on women in locker rooms, prisons, etc. Um, also, it's worth noting that it's wreaking havoc in the world of professional sports where a man can self-identify as a woman and break records. Um, obviously, this is not a level playing field. Um, how, how do you think as a society we should deal with this? And I know I've been, I've been accused of picking on the trans women a lot, but you know, they, it's not an even playing field when we're talking about um, biological males who, who 
transition in biological females. Um, I don't think anyone would be concerned if I joined a sports team because I'm I'm not going to beat the men. Um, but self ID does concern me. I think self ID is a is a huge mistake that the trans community is making. You know, I see this as um, it's a legal fiction that we've entered into as part of our treatment. It's like a social contract. We don't ever literally change sex. It's a treatment for a condition. Um, so A, I think we need proper diagnosis of that condition and proper education about that condition and in order to receive a treatment for it. Um, I, think, I think in the long run, that idea is protective of the trans community because this, this so legal fiction that we've been granted requires that the, that, that the public at large feels okay with, with this social contract, that we, need, we have responsibilities in this social contract, not just, not just rights and or privileges. Um, and I think this social contract has to be mutually agreeable. Um, and if we start to disrupt or put communities at risk of harm in some way, I think it, it then becomes understandable if the community or society says, okay, this may be this legal contract, this social contract that we have here isn't, isn't working. Mm -hmm. So that, so I think what self ID does is it opens the door for all kinds of bad players to take advantage of the system. We've already seen that in Canada. We've seen, um, we've seen men who have, you know, raped children, um, ID, suddenly IDing as trans in prison and being transferred into female prisons. Uh, part of the, it's my understanding, part of the intake process now in, in so many places, not just prisons, but often when you're doing paperwork, you're asked about which sex you are, what gender you are on a lot of intake forums, including prisons. And so if you line up a bunch of rapists or murderers, and basically ask them, would you rather go to the male prison or the female prison? It's not hard to imagine that some men in that position would say, well, I'd much yeah. rather go to the female prison. Um, the prison that this individual who, who raped a child um, some years ago transferred to a female prison that has a, a mother and baby um, ward mm. in this prison. I mean, how is that appropriate? I mean, that obviously puts people at great risk. And it, it does me no favors as a trans person when people abuse the system in, in this way in order to harm others. Yeah, so I, I, I believe we're thinking about the same person. I was reading up on this uh, uh, about a month ago. Um, this person is has transitioned. They have undergone therapy, hormone therapy, and all of that stuff, and now they identify as a woman. I believe it's the same person. That could um, be. I think there's yeah. a few different cases here in Canada, but yeah. um, but some of these individuals, because I, I, I don't think there's a, even a, a requirement all the time that people have to go through any, well, any transition gonna, process. I was going to ask you about that because, you know, when we say self-identifying, I, I imagine that at least as far as the prison system is concerned, I would think that a, a bare minimum has to be met in terms of, well, has this person transitioned? I, I, would, I would say that, that that at least is something worth considering. Um, I mean, anybody can identify any by, you know, I can identify as the king of Spain, you know, but that doesn't make it true. So, but, so are you saying that you can just, as a male prisoner, say, I, you know, I'm identifying, I'm strongly identifying as a woman, even though, I've never undergone any of this treatment um, and I'm still hanging on to all of my body parts and everything. Uh, and prison is obliged to consider this? Well, that's that's my understanding of how self-identification self works. I know in the province mm -hmm. of BC, they've recently changed the law where anyone can go and change their ID, their, the gender marker on their ID without any documentation or without any ex um, expectation of any medical interventions that, mm -hmm. that they've, you know, most... Provinces are now ado adopting self ID as, as part of law that anyone can just declare which which sex they are and have that yeah. written on their on their ID. There was yeah. a case in Alberta of, of a man who self ID'd as female so that he could get cheaper car insurance. <laughs> okay, 
I can I can see so many possibilities with this, but uh, and yeah, it's it's just uh, extraordinary in the times that we live in. Um, it, it appears that big businesses have also embraced trans culture in a really big way. There's been a big push, I, I believe, the last couple of weeks uh, with uh, uh, Dylan Mulvaney. Uh, um, one example really stands out for me uh, with Nike um, uh, giving him a sponsorship uh, a deal for a sports bra, of all things. Um, this has drawn criticism from some very prominent lesbians like former tennis star Martina Navratilova. Uh, what is your what is your take on this? I mean, do you think that um, fundamentally we are at a point in our time where women are being excluded once again? <laughs> well, it, it, it certainly it certainly does seem that way, doesn't it? I mean, I'm I mean, I am impressed that there there is an organization. I think Martina is part of that organization and a number of, of senior athletes, um, women and and some trans women who have who are getting together to really have um thoughtful, nuanced conversations to find solutions that are fair for everybody. And I applaud those kinds of efforts of balancing social inclusion with fairness. Mm -hmm. uh, seeing some of these athletes, you know, who are a good foot taller than all of the other female athletes, you know, competing against them in swimming. I, I mean, that's those kinds of cases are, are so obviously not fair that it's, it, it's enraging people. And, yeah. and I understand the outrage. I mean, we have to, this is, and this goes back to the this idea of this, this is a legal fiction that we don't literally change sex. And um, we, you know, we have to, we, when we're writing policies and, and laws, we have to take biological sex into consideration. Uh, yeah, I mean, I find Dylan Mulvaney very interesting. I mean, it's mostly theater. He's, he's, he's a performer. Um, I, I'm actually uh, entertained by much of what he does, like, you know, his, the sports bra thing, you know, I think he was exercising. It was comical. It made me laugh. You know, I don't even know what that is. Um, and uh, but at the same time, you know, it, 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 uh, it made me concerned that, you know, you know, here he is modeling for a sports bra and uh, and, you know, and, and women, um, women's sports bra that too. I mean. Who else wears a sports bra? But yeah, it's just uh, very, it's, it's entertaining on the one hand, but at the, on the other, it's also very uh, scary if you're a woman that, you know, once again, you find yourself in this situation where uh, we're once again uh, treated as second-class citizens um, by men. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you that, you know, I think Dylan, for the most part, would be fairly harmless if it weren't for these big institutions propping what he's doing up. But I mean, who knows if Dylan even has gender dysphoria? I, you know, I, I follow a little bit of, of Matt Walsh's work. And, yeah. you know, I think Matt Walsh had a really good point that looking back at footage of, of Dylan's behavior on things like The Price is Right prior to transition was a very performative, mm. very attention-seeking sort of individual um, which leads, you know, to speculation that this is all just a money-making grift, that it's a performance, it's yeah, it's not it's, sincere, it's not gender dysphoria, it's an opportunity to make a lot of money and achieve the fame that Dylan always wanted. It's it's entertainment at the end of the day, and that's how I view this one particular individual, um, um, at least, you know, at face, on face value, it's just pure, sheer entertainment. Uh, and I understand if, if I understand if women find that a mockery, because I as a trans person, I find that a mockery as well to turn mm -hmm. it all into just a performance. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, finally, finally, Aaron, uh, you've been critical of the politicization of uh, uh, politicization in debates about gender and sexuality. Um, what is the way forward here? Um, right now, it seems like positions are so polarized that there is no, that, that, that one feels like there is really no common ground here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, well, our, our philosophy with the Gender Dysphoria Alliance is to try to just try to find a third way. I mean, we, we, we we're trying to remove ourselves completely from that gender ideology or the queer theory. Um, and are just trying to, to dive into uh, the, the, the research about what gender dysphoria is. And we're trying to just have conversations based on the reality of what gender dysphoria is. Um, I, I personally think that's, that's the way forward is to just have a really honest conversations about what all of this is about and remove that very deceptive lens of queer theory from it. 
Um, we're not trying to push a specific politic or a certain philosophy. We're just trying to understand for ourselves what gender dysphoria is and grapple with that based on what the actual research says. And our, um, our hope is that if we educate others that that will be helpful and we can, we can problem solve if we kind of really understand, have a good grasp of, of what we're really talking about. Yeah. Rather than well, the smoke and mirrors that we're all being fed. Yeah, I mean, I, I just hope that uh, that I, you know, I that we find some kind of middle ground here. Uh, at least my own position when it comes to children is that they, they have no agency and I don't think the medical community should be pushing them uh, on, uh, to this down this path. Uh, adults, it's a different issue. Uh, it's your body, your choice. Uh, that's that's where I, you know, that's my position on that. Um, but I think, you know, you rightly point uh, point out in many of your writings that anytime you criticize uh, something in the trans space, one is called transphobic. You yourself, I, I believe, have been called transpho transphobic, which is kind of hilarious. It's a bit like me being called a white supremacist. So, um, um, you know, it's just everything has just become polarized. And I really hope that we find that common ground, uh, you know, for all our sakes, um, I, uh, at least, you know, and for the future of our children. And I think what the left needs to realize is that there's more than one model for social justice, you know, because they seem to think that unless people believe in these postmodern theories, therefore you're a racist or therefore you're a transphobe or, or homophobic. And they've forgotten that there are other models for social justice, yeah. ones based on individual character. Um, so I would like to see more of that kind of, of politic and, and social justice, uh, getting back to the roots of, of social justice. Mm. um or or civil you know civil liberties and um because i think it's these postmodern theories that are creating most of most of the problem and and it creates some that's what's creating so much polarization and division that mm. that people can't criticize critical theory without being immediately branded as as phobic of one one kind or another and and i think you know i i, I like what the work um FAIR is doing, if you're familiar with that organization, oh, oh, of, of addressing, addressing civil liberties, you know, from, from more of a, the grassroots of what civil rights movements of the past used to be, uh, and trying to carve out space for a new way of, um, of addressing things like racism uh, and intolerance in our society without critical theory. Yeah, no, I, I actually belong to the Ottawa chapter of uh, FAIR, and uh, uh, it is a wonderful organization, and uh, these are conversations that we, uh, we, we frequently have, and I think uh, and, and more people should be having these conversations moving forward, uh, and I really hope Better Sense prevails uh, uh, moving forward. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to have you uh, with me, Aaron, and, uh, and I really uh, appreciate all of your insights, your um, uh, and, and, and sharing uh, with us your views. It's been incredibly informative for me. Um, and I really hope that you uh, return to the show and uh, sometime soon and we'll continue the conversation. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure and I'd, I'd be happy to talk to you again. Okay, wonderful. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you. Thank you.